with Cameron, as does being neither doctrinaire nor ideologically driven. Each man possessed a very English, patrician vision of the nation and a strong commitment to social justice and service. Both exuded a natural sense of confidence and did not have to exert themselves over others. When the occasion demanded, and it often did, they were cutters and trimmers in an effort to hold their parties and coalitions together. Both were criticised for this, but they would respond that national priorities, party management and coalition cohesion necessitated their ducking and weaving. They brushed aside setbacks and doubts about them. Cameron, despite being twenty years Baldwin's junior when in office, was the more comfortable and self-confident figure, coming across as unruffled because he was unruffled. The coalitions of 1931-5 and 2010-15 had striking similarities too. The prime objective of each was economic recovery after the two worst economic crises of the last hundred years caused by international instability and mismanagement by predecessor governments. Baldwin and Cameron were criticised for their economic judgments and for the uneven and slow pace of recovery. Both men were ideally suited to manage the dynamics of coalition government and working out what was possible, although Cameron was the less sensitive to disquiet within the party. The primary achievement, too, of both administrations was similar, overseeing recovery in difficult economic times while providing stability at home at a time of considerable international unrest and uncertainty. Both Baldwin and Cameron relished their roles as head of the nation. It appealed to their shy Tory sense of duty that coursed through their veins. Both men, if pushed, would probably see themselves as much national as sectional leaders. Cameron was not at his strongest uplifting the nation with his oratory, in contrast to Baldwin, notably in the India debates in 1931 and during the abdication crisis in 1936. He lacked Baldwin's gifts as teacher to the nation, inspiring the country with new understandings. If democracy is in part government by explanation, Baldwin understood this intuitively. Could Cameron have done more and earlier to persuade the Scottish people of the merits of the Union in the 2014 referendum? Cameron was uncomfortable at anything that smacked of rabble-rousing or courting an emotional response, and this restraint often came at the expense of taking the public with him. He found it notably difficult to sound passionate during the 2010 general election, or until late in the day in the 2015 election. Successful Prime Ministers need outstanding qualities of character, combined with high-order skills of leadership. How did Cameron fare? He proved one of the most psychologically balanced Prime Ministers since 1900, too balanced in the eyes of some, who craved more passion and flair. From his first days in Number 10, officials noted his equilibrium in contrast to the volcanic Gordon Brown. Cameron indeed exhibited many of the qualities that officials most admire. Impressive intellectually, Vernon Bogdanor, his tutor, said he was one of the ablest and nicest students I taught at Oxford. He achieved an outstanding first-class degree. He disposed of the torrent of paperwork that fills prime ministerial boxes and mastered his briefs with alacrity. Like Baldwin and Macmillan, he was interested in what the press had to say, but not obsessively so. Unlike Brown, Blair and Major, he did not work himself up into a lather if he or his government was being criticised. 
Like Baldwin and Churchill, he understood the importance of relaxation and was unashamed to take evenings and holidays off in an effort to escape the constant intrusions into a prime minister's life. He possessed a strong constitution and could refresh himself with half an hour's sleep when necessary. His appetite for hard work was under-recognised by many contemporaries, who preferred to categorise him as a chillaxed or even as an indolent prime minister, a charge also levelled at Baldwin in his case with justice, not least by Neville Chamberlain. Whereas number 10 damages many PM's marriages, his relationship with Samantha became stronger. He leant on her throughout for emotional and practical support. The job of Prime Minister's consort is little understood. They rank among the most influential and least studied of any in the PM's inner court. Samantha was no exception. Although a strong personality, she could be overwhelmed by the grandeur of the role, especially in the early years. She kept her husband grounded, although he too recognised the importance of spending time with family and with old friends unrelated.